Hi, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. Earlier this year, to celebrate NAIDOC Week, the Indigenous Peoples Organisation Australia, in collaboration with Better Futures Australia, hosted a webinar series called Heal Country, Heal Climate. Today on the show, we'll hear part three of a three-part episode called Pursuing Global Justice. This episode is chaired by Gairi and Bachelor Woman Kathy Etok from the Indigenous Peoples Organisation of Australia. And the speakers are Wiradjuri and Nyamba Woman, Dr Virginia Marshall, Kabi Kabi and Goreng Goreng Man, Pastor Ray Minicon and Wati Man, Kato Muir. And so this discussion about treaty, this discussion about changing the constitution, you know, going into a preamble in the constitution is meaningless when the opportunity we could be looking at doing is actually rewriting the entire constitution. And in doing that, we reflect the relationships between Mm -hmm. uh, the First Nations and the settler state that then is built around, you know, the wholesome values and principles and uh, not the extraction and exploitation but a welcoming mm. of um uh, in the you know talk earlier this week we talked about the importance of people speaking languages of the land resourcing that so that every australian has the opportunity to learn the language from the place that they actually live in so it's just you know simple things like that And I think the discussion also comes about with doctrine of discovery. You know, that's been on people's minds for years, but that whole idea of framing the dominance, and and they call that a framework of dominance um, in international discussions. So, you know, that in itself is is, um, a huge barrier. Uh, And you're right, you know, when you talk about those different issues that cause a, a, a new reset um, to the way uh, things are being done, um, you know, that doctrine has really been dogged in the way that it's also um, just kept sovereignty and sovereignty issues at bay. And we can see, um, you know, many of the judges will certainly balk um, at that issue being discussed and, and certainly it's never been resolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, Cato actually raised the other day the Mabo decision, which is really significant and hasn't actually fully been fully been um, implemented or explored because Mabo didn't just recognise the native title rights of the Mer people. It recognised traditional law continued and that traditional law is sovereignty. It's the sovereignty of Indigenous peoples. And that that hasn't really, um, thanks to John Howard and the 10-point plan and a whole series of legislative moves since then have continuously tried to constrain that judgment. But it it hasn't been given um, full effect and it needs to be revisited because it, it was a just finding 
that the follow-up legislation hasn't lived up to the promise of that finding? Because there's there's in in that declaration by the uh, the high court there. Actually, there's two high court decisions that have really really we 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 need to revisit and somehow uh, claim as our our basic rights under this particular legal system. Anyways, those two decisions are not just only the uh, Mabo decision and one of those one part of that decision. I think it's in. Uh, the, the declaration, I think it's the fourth declaration, the High Court declared that the Miriam people have the, the exclusive right to possession, occupation, use and enjoyment of the lands of their ancestors. Those four things, if you put that particular definition of sovereignty on any other nation on the planet, that would sit perfectly within their definition of what sovereignty is. Now, the High Court decision made this decision here in Australia. Now, out of it, we've got this stupid thing called native title. But the other, other decision that was made here by the High Court, which I think we, the, we haven't really analysed very, very clearly, is the one that was made between um, the, the High Court and... Uh, love versus the commonwealth and oh. trump versus the commonwealth where they mm. declared very clearly that none of the events of invasion settlement federation or the event of foreign citizenship laws have displaced the unique position of indigenous peoples with their lands and it is just not ancestry or place or birth or even both Indigenous peoples have a connection with the land, waters and skies under Indigenous laws and customs. No imposed citizenship act has removed or modified that connection. No parliament or foreign government has removed or modified that connection by any other laws or legislation. So therefore, that little family over there in the foreign country there has no rights over us, according to the Blumen High Court decisions. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, it's not going to be, it hasn't been applied that way, but it's really great for us but to interpret it that way. It's, it's not about them applying it to yeah. us. It's about us applying it to ourselves. I know, I know, and I get And I think that's really important. That's, I'm, get, I'm getting a bit passionate here. I better come. No, no, <laughs> no we want a passionate Uncle Ray. <laughs> there's a question from an anonymous attendee. Uh, can we please discuss the impacts of animal agriculture and human population on the environment, uh, especially its impacts on this country as it plays an overwhelming part of the climate crisis? We as uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, especially in the desert and, you know, the coastal people uh, had other resources, but we, we were hunter-gatherers or gatherer-hunters. And the environment we managed... Uh, was predominantly for, uh, you know, the renewal of those resources. We have ceremonial sites where we perform ceremonies to renew particular plants, particular animals, and all these different co-residents um, of country. And the impacts of animal agriculture for a traditional blackfellow, it's actually an ab abhorrent thing to be domesticating and taming an animal for food because 
we have this spiritual connection with these animals that they go about their life, do their things. And if we take their life for sustenance, we pay respects to them through particular rituals and protocols and all those sort of things. So the impacts of animal agriculture and human population on the environment is, it actually goes back to the story I was talking about with um, imperialism and the, the, uh, economic forces because what we're generally doing is creating a surplus and continuing that surplus at the cost to the environment, the population, etc. that we um, uh, interact with. So a lot of desertification, for instance, is a result of overgrazing, whereas our science as uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, our science is designed to work with and maximise the natural way in which uh, the environment operates. So that, that's just uh, my few bobs on, on that question. Yeah, no, thanks, Cato. That, that was uh, a, a good summary. The term agriculture is a, is a bit of a loaded word, really. But I think that there are some practices such as the fish farming, eel farming and things where agriculture practices you know it's it's a very foreign concept the 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 term um, agriculture but people um, living sustainably and dreaming histories that that are, have been recounted down through the generations around, around that but yeah, I, I take your, your point and I think that that's a common feature across all uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, Cato, is um, to live sustainably with the environment and, and not over-utilise it. Yeah, I, I just think it's really important to remember, especially in the relation to fishing, you know, it, it, there always uh, is uh, a, a strange sort of argument that... Um, governments and also uh, various institutions, departments, believe that when they actually um, uh, set up <coughs> green sanctuary, for example, that many times they don't even consider that Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people need to continue to sustainably use those um, resources within that marine sanctuary. And I've seen it many, many times over the years where they keep our people out. So I think that what what other government agencies and um, people managing those systems really need to think very clearly that it's it's not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people that are going to go out there and um, take um, you know uh, five hundred fish, uh, but you know it's enough for the trawlers and and a whole run range of unsustainable um, uh, professional fishing by you know people coming into our waters. Um, who, who don't have a licence. So I think that, you know, we've really got to look at um, the same issues that we have with national parks for many, many years, and Cato would relate to this and Uncle Ray and yourself, is that Aboriginal people were told never to go in and take berries or plants, um, you know, not to um, take any of those things, worming, you know, worms to use for fishing, to put on your hook, you know, all of those um, different activities you know, we're not even thinking about, you know, large um, economic livelihoods, but just those um, sustaining families, um, eating um, fish or 
abalone that's part of culture. You know, all of that is so important, but yet why do we have um, so many institutions that just believe that we're the same as everyone else, that we're going to be exploitative? So I think that that needs to be reset as well. I think too, you know, I come from the other side of 1967. Now, we didn't get any salaries or welfare in those days there, so we lived off the land. <clears throat> and then 1967 came along, and then we were still living off the land, even though we were living more in, in towns and stuff. But there was something happened in 1971, which took us from living off our dugong and our turtle to living off our Happy Meal. They put in Queensland that you wanted to go fishing, you had to have a fishing license. And suddenly, whatever we did traditionally became illegal. Mm-hmm. And even under native title law, those laws still remain in place so that even if I wanted to go out there and eat off my dugong and turtle, I still got to go through native title, which is not my law, but somebody else's law to actually live off the land again. So I've got to go down to McDonald's and have a happy meal again. And then we all get sick and stuff. And we're looking at all of this other stuff here. And perhaps what we're not looking at either is the regulations that govern us. I still feel like, you know, I'm still under the Aboriginal Protection Act back in Queensland, even though we're supposed to be free after that. We're still living under the Bloomin Act. It's just Mm -hmm. now a federal act. But we've mm. still got to have an Aboriginal Affairs Minister to govern us. Mm. Mm. That's very true, Ray, very true. And, you know, the lack of control that mob have over sacred sites just really highlights that. Mm. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. There's the other element to that, which um, those regulations and those laws are actually designed to create a dependency. And in that dependency, you then are forced to engage in the market economy. Whereas if you're taking resources from the lands according to your traditional methods mm-hmm. you're uh, not participating in that uh, economy yes and i think if the Torres Strait Islander mob were here tonight too they would see the same things because fishing trawlers went into their country and they're still in that country there mm-hmm. you know just trawling out all the all of their resources there and blackfellow they're going to live a happy meal again I think it's true and it's it's a good point that Cato makes. I think the work for the Dole program, the community development program, where they had, what, 300,000 uh, penalties which stopped payments to 30,000 people over two years in remote mm-hmm. communities, the fact that people survived at all is a testament mm-hmm. to them actually going out and living off bush food and you know and and being reliant on on themselves uh, it's it's um it, it, a complete travesty that 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 has occurred and thankfully it has now been wound up 
but such hardship it brought on communities. I think there's another thing, Cathy, too, that we talked about this with Nagoya protocols, you know, in regards to our, our medicines and bush foods. You know, Australia needs to ratify that Nagoya protocol now. Um, you know, people don't realise that, you know, there's so many um, benefits for Australia to actually in, uh, ratify that Nagoya protocol because, you know, when we're actually going to be dealing with um, other nation states and exporting these um, uh, foods and, and also medicines, you know, we need to have a certification that we've actually um, taken the, the supply of a particular um, plant or whatnot, that it's it's been done uh, in the best of integrity and it's also been sourced with integrity. So, you know, we really need to make sure that that's endorsed really soon. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, the benefit sharing agreement so we can have a register and, and make sure people are getting exactly what they deserve, you know, yeah. just the end of a food chain. I, I think that's also really important. Hmm. You know, one of the one of the other outcomes of that uh, fishing license was the fact that uh, uh, the you know uh, the the extraction of raw raw materials a, a, in our country there created the the poisons to go into that particular area, those fishing fishing areas. Mm. And we had, you know, two-headed fish and all kinds of different types of crabs. You can't eat your food anymore because of the pollution in the water. I mean, I, I'm, I'm living here in Sydney. I would never eat a fish out of, out of Sydney Harbour here. Mm. <laughs> it's, and it's because of these regulations that they, they don't regulate the poisons, but they mm. will regulate what we can take out of the, uh, uh, out of, for our traditional foods. And it's, even, you know, when you look at Moree, for example, up in that area there with the cotton industry, all the spraying that's happened up there has created all these cancers. And I personally, on the other side of 1967, I didn't even know that there was such a word or a disease called cancer. <laughs> now it's just rife throughout our communities. What's causing that? Yeah. I was just going to come back to a point that Kathy made about... Um the poverty experienced by a mob during the um, CDP changes. The mm -hmm. thing that uh, we need to celebrate in that is it comes back to one of our um, institutions, social uh, soft infrastructure that we have, which is the sharing economy that we enjoy and participate in. Now, everyone talks about it negatively often because, oh, you know, Rello's asking for this and that. But that sharing economy is a fundamental aspect of uh, us being Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And that's how we survive these uh, hardships is through that sharing economy. Yeah, like one of my old elders told, she showed me a long time ago, he said, you know, you've got to look at your people from a positive view, asset-based, you know, mm -hmm. because we built this country. We built the pastoral industry. We built mm -hmm. the infrastructure like roads and rails. We built the fishing industry. We did all of that stuff, even though it was slave, slave, you know, slavery and all that kind of stuff. But we also changed the ways in which things work. I mean, CDEP didn't come out of Johnny Howard's mind. We created CDEP policies because our people, our old people knew how to make sure that 
our young people, if they want to get this welfare, they're going to have to work for it because they had the worth work ethic already instilled in them. So they created that and saying, you give us the money, we'll make these young fellas work for their money until Johnny Howard came along and changed the whole blooming thing and, and disrupted our the ways and ways of our ways of trying to get into the market economy and work, work in it that way. We, we, we also changed the ways in which systems work. And I, I can tell you this because, you know, from the other side of 67, we didn't have an Aboriginal medical service. Where did that come from? They come from an Aboriginal mind. Mm. Aboriginal legal service, they come from an Aboriginal mind. I don't think the land council came out of an Aboriginal mind, but they make sure they try to shape it that way. See, well, the Kimberley Land Council did. People's movement. A people's movement, yeah, yeah. Then it became legislated. <laughs> Once it got legislated, it got a little bit tied up with all that kind of government people there, appointing people and all that kind of business. Mm, mm. Yeah, the, the CDEP was was different to the CDP, the, the, the more recent one. The, the CDEP, which was the Community Development Employment Program, MOB actually got resources into communities. Communities had decision-making about what work was undertaken. Yep. And they got a little bit more on top of their um, welfare payments, on top of their unemployment benefits for working. So it wasn't really working for nothing like the CDP mm. program was. And mm. the CDE program took the decision-making away from communities, so told them what work would be done which was always, you know, not relevant to the community's needs, didn't pay them anything, only gave them penalties. And yeah, all of those, um, yeah, mm. terrible penalties. But a good point Cato made about the responsibilities that we all share, you know, wherever we're from, Aboriginal people always have that responsibility to each other, you know. I, I know I was raised with it and everybody, um, every, all mob I meet have that instilled in them. And that's, that's something that we bring, that responsibility, not just to each other, but to the broader community as well. And that's something that the broader community can learn because that's mm -hmm. the sort of, you know, values that we need in tackling mm -hmm. climate change. Um, the next question is, this, this is a country hijacked by Murdoch Media. Civil society space is shrinking and the government's ongoing funding for the fossil fuel industry is notorious. So how to expose? Yeah, well, I, I really have great respect for investigative journalism. And, you know, that's what we need to keep alive and well in Australia and especially you know, um, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, owning um, news media and, and also like the National Indigenous Times, I think they do fabulous work. Mm. So, you know, investigative journalism is should be alive and well. And we saw in the last couple of years um, them exposing so many issues. But, you know, it was very sad to see that on a, a recent, um, I guess, lecture that I had for environmental law that I was teaching is that, you know, issues about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in all of the issues that journalists actually write about, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were third on the bottom, third on the bottom. You know, that is, is so important to change. We need yeah. to have, you know, positive articles like you said, Uncle Ray. We need to have positive um, 
stories and we need to have, um, you know, to counter all of the exposés of all of those negatives and the serious issues, um, I, we, we need to encourage more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journos, you know, mm. and there's also to be part and parcel of this, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And we need to, you know, collect, connect, continue to connect globally too because all of our Indigenous peoples globally are suffering from the same kind of challenges. Yeah. But we have this incredible resource from, it, from, from them as well to actually build our new future together because we're now living in a global community. And so we now have to connect globally to try to build more community. And, and we can do that. I mean, I'm, I'm part of a, you know, a global Indigenous university. We've, we've done it. It's, it's done. It's finished. We, we've got it up and running. It's all at postgraduate level. And we're registered with the US government. We've got an accreditation there. So, you know, we've done it. Yeah. And it's self-determination, Uncle Ray, too, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. We've got to own our own, own knowledge. We've got to own our own stories. They're our stories. I mean, you know, one of the old people often said to me when I was out there uh, that these researchers would come in and research this old fella and get all of his knowledge, and then he'd go out and get his PhD. Mm. And the old fellow was saying, well, hang on a sec. If he got his PhD, I gave him all this knowledge. What do I get? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Whereas he's supposed to have the PhD to teach him. Well, he's got a triple PhD, but you're going to teach them fellas. And so it, it's that kind of balancing act, that equity that we need to be starting looking at. Not equality. I'm not into equality, but equity. Mm. Well, we can change the balance of things in a way in which we're seen as human beings in our own right. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And today on the show, we had part three of a three-part episode called Pursuing Global Justice. And it's from the NADOC 2021 series, Hill Country, Hill Climate. This webinar series is hosted by the Indigenous Peoples Organisation Australia at indigenouspeoplesorg.com.au and Better Futures Australia at betterfutures.org.au. And if you missed part of today's show or you want to check out part one or part two of this episode, Pursuing Global Justice, you can find the podcast and all the details of the speakers at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we would love you to subscribe. And why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word? Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. That's all for this week, but don't forget, tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt, or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.